everyone. Welcome to the Scripture Study Project, our podcast dedicated to helping you discover the Scriptures in a fresh way, invest your mind and heart into your personal study, and connect to God in your everyday life. We're your hosts, Zach and Krista Horton, and this week we're studying sections 121 through 123. Of course, some of the uh, pinnacle sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. This was, I think it was verses 7 through 9 and 121 that were my favorite verses when I was a teenager because they're so uplifting and, and positive and probably you and many and many, many others else. I yep. think that's I don't know I don't know what the most quoted scriptures are in the Doctrine and Covenants but these rank among the top I'm sure probably and <laughs> I, I I won't apologize but I almost feel like I should because for the third week in a row I want to build on what we studied last week and so I feel I hope this isn't redundant but um, I want to kind of pick up where we left off last week. No, I don't think it's too redundant. That's like saying that the third Lord of the Rings movie is redundant, which that's not true. If this episode is as good to people as the Lord of the Rings <laughs> was, then we've we've hit it home. Now, when you start to get into like 500 repeats, like the Avengers movies, then maybe you're in trouble. But if we're still just sticking to the Lord of the Rings with three, then we're okay. Okay, so this is the... Although Lord of the Rings ruined it too. Like so many hobbits. Yeah. I say that if this is the Return of the Kings version of our podcast, that's okay. Yeah. But if this is the third Hobbit movie, then... Or if it turns into Star Wars or Avengers where you're going on 5,000 of the... We anyway. promise we won't do a backstory on some <laughs> random obscure person from this from the section. No, we will because that, that kind of stuff's cool in this case. Because ours are only 30-minute podcast episodes. Anyway, moving on to the important part. Well, uh, there is... My favorite talk that uh, I read or at least review every time I study section 121 is a talk that Elder Holland gave at BYU, I think 15 years ago or so, called Lessons from Liberty Jail. And in that, he references both B.H. Roberts and Neil A. Maxwell. So this is a prophet quoting, or an apostle quoting two other apostles. And describing Liberty Jail as a prison temple. Um, he says, Elder Neil A. Maxwell used the phrasing of a prison temple. And then Elder Holland says, certainly it lacked the purity, the beauty, the comfort, and the cleanliness of our true temples, our dedicated temples. The speech and behavior of the guard and criminals who came there was anything but temple-like. In fact, the restricting brutality and injustice of this experience at liberty would make it seem the very antithesis of the liberating, merciful spirit of our temples and the ordinances that are performed in them. So in what sense could Liberty Jail be called a temple, or at least a kind of temple, in the development of Joseph Smith personally and in his role as a prophet? And what does such a title tell us about God's love and teachings, including where and when that love and those teachings are made manifest. I think that's just a fascinating frame to put on Liberty Jail. And as we dive into this episode, we want to dig a little bit into what uh, happened in Liberty Jail, what we learn from that experience about our own difficulties and trials, and the reason behind them. I think to to set it up, though, for yourself, it's probably most useful if you take a moment to just think about those experiences in your life, either in the past or maybe most helpfully in your present, that to you might feel like a prison. 
big or small, I know that many people have uh, very long or very painful prison-like experiences. I know there's also little small prison-like experiences, and they come from different reasons. Uh, Joseph and others are in Liberty Jail for a myriad of different reasons. Um, of course, they're there because of persecution from the Missourians um, and the desire that that Mormonism be removed from Missouri. There's political motivations behind that. There's deep religious fissures between the kind of Eastern um, orthodoxy, Puritanism that uh, that Missourians sense is coming West with the members of the church and their own kind of native frontier religion. So there's that. And so one reason they're in temple is because the people around them are mean to them. And Joseph writes that uh, in these sections. You can see that he's obviously sensing that they're uh, at, the, at the hands of their enemies. They're also in liberty because they're trying to obey difficult commandments that uh, don't harmonize with the world around them. So they're trying to do the right things. And that's part of the reason why they're in this prison. The third reason they're there is honestly because of some of their own mistakes. The church is not guiltless in Missouri. Because of our experiences in New York and Ohio and in Jackson County, uh, members of the church decide to stand up for themselves, protect themselves, and even be somewhat aggressive. And so there are some periods in Missouri where members of the church were the aggressors, where we took the fight to Missourians and uh, caused damage, caused injury, and caused harm. Um, because of that kind of escalation of what's happening, um, Joseph Smith and other church leaders are put into prison because they're seen as the leaders of this group that's just causing all kinds of problems in Missouri. So there's lots of reasons why they're in prison. As you think about your own, you can probably think of different prison experiences that come from different reasons of your own. Well, and certainly that, you know, like you mentioned, Zach, that there's different periods of time where you have different experiences or your own different prison temples. Like I think of you loving that scripture as a teenager and thinking of honestly a few um what's interesting is a few people come to mind from my high school seminary class that I remember sharing that scripture because it was also meaningful to them. And you might look back now and think, oh, this scripture means something different to me now because of these different experiences I've had. But that really what great lessons we can learn from this experience of Joseph Smith, not just in those few verses that we often quote, but that there's a lot to learn from their greater experience and all that was happening I mean, I just can't even fathom all that was going on within the church. And even to think of being a settler and maybe understanding even their point of view of like these people are coming in and taking over this little tiny place that I was going to call my own and now I'm feeling threatened. So all sides of this story is really kind of an interesting thing to think about. Well, and I think what you're getting at too is the the adjustment we want to make to the frame, at least I have normally put on these sections. Normally, I've come to a reading of sections 121, 122 with the idea that, well, we're going through something difficult and here's the comfort that's given. But with that frame from Elder Holland that this is a prison temple, temples have a purpose. There is something that's supposed to happen. 
And that's a different perspective. Um, whether we're in our prisons from our own mistakes or whether we're there because of the actions of others, certainly God allows those things to happen for a reason. He's allowing Joseph and church leaders to be in Liberty Jail, which was horrible. They're there for four or five months in the middle of the winter. They're hearing all these stories of uh, church members being kicked out of their homes, and they have to flee to Quincy, Illinois, leave the whole state of Missouri. Um, their living conditions in Liberty Jail are pretty horrible. They describe them as being really drastically um, negative. And so there's a purpose behind that. And what we want to get to with this episode is... What is that purpose, not just for them, but for us? Um, what do we learn from our own prison temples? So the first part of this with our invest question this week is, how can I endure uh, my own personal prison temples or my own personal hardships that we're going through? And I want to take this first with maybe a broader perspective on all of these sections because I didn't really have necessarily um, a verse, although there's many that you'll you'll find that relate to this. But I just thought it's okay to have all the emotions. You read this and you feel deeply that Joseph is just in agony and grief over many different things, his, leaving his family, all the things that Zach just talked about. Um, and, you know, I think also he realizes that it is a purifying thing. Um, he becomes closer to those prisoners around him. They build this bond as they suffer through something really hard together, which is also common for hard experiences, right? Um, but they, it's okay to have the emotions. We don't need to fake ourselves and pretend that we all have to smile through hard things. It's okay to be mad. It's okay to be sad. You're going to go through all of those emotions and processes as you grieve and as you change and grow through these hard things. Yeah. I, I haven't mentioned this yet, but um, one interesting fact about these sections is uh, they are excerpts from a letter. Joseph Smith wrote eight letters um, to church members or to the church generally while he was in Liberty Jail. And one of them that was written on March 20th is the letter from which sections 121, 122, and 123 all come. Uh, we will link this in our show notes so that you can get the whole letter. So, for example, verse 1 of section 121 uh, is actually the seventh paragraph of this letter that Joseph writes. And to describe what you're saying, in the beginning of the letter, he's just recounting the stories that they have heard in prison of what's happening to church members. Uh, and he says, It is a tale of woe, a lamentable tale, yea, a sorrowful tale, too much to tell, too much for contemplation, too much for human beings. It cannot be found among the heathens. It cannot be found among the nations where kings and tyrants are enthroned. It cannot be found among the savages in the wilderness, yea, and I think it cannot be found among the wild and ferocious beasts of the forest that a man should be mangled for sport. And he goes on to describe everything they're hearing. And then it's what we have is verse 1 in section 121, O God, where art thou? So you can sense Joseph's emotion. Certainly, and I know in Come Follow Me, they mentioned they have a, a snippet of a letter between Emma and Joseph and just the agony of knowing what he's leaving behind that all that everyone else is going through as well. Um, so I think that's the first answer to that question is how can I endure is just understand that there's going to be a lot of emotions involved with it and allow yourself to feel those. Um, and then the second thing I thought of was, as I studied, 
was something that I came upon in section 123, verse 12. And the Lord is speaking to the people about bringing, um, bringing light to others, basically knowing that you're going to still want to share the gospel light with even people that have done harm to you. And I just, that word light stuck out to me, um, in verse 13, therefore that we should waste and wear out our lives in bringing to light all the hidden things of darkness, wherein we know them, and they are truly manifest from heaven. And I just thought, you know, even in as we're going through hard times, some of the things that we really don't want to do, maybe I'm just speaking for me personally, <laughs> but um, is that sometimes you don't want to do things that bring light to your life. You're just, it's, it's hard, and you don't want to do those things that probably you know will help, but it's too hard to even want to do those things. Um, but we can't stop gathering that light. Well, and I think that might be one difference, uh, at least here, or maybe it's not a difference, but um, a difference of degrees between a prison temple and just a regular temple. In a regular temple, the environment is crafted so that having a spiritually uplifting and growing experience is fairly straightforward. You don't have to work hard to feel the spirit in the temple or to learn and to grow. But in a prison temple, even though the outcomes can be just as holy and sacred, Elder Holland describes that in his talk of the powerful outcomes that can come in these prison temples that can be just as sacred and holy to us as experiences in temples. I think in a prison temple, there's an element, a much greater element of agency. I have to choose to continue to search for light, to continue to work. And that's a hard choice to make because I don't want to do that when I'm in prison. When I'm in prison, I want it to be dark. I want to sit in the darkness. Um, I want to feel what I'm feeling and be angry. (laughs) I don't want to have to try and seek for light. Which, remember my first point, it's okay to feel that way. But also, I think we need a little of both. We need to remember both. Um, And then lastly, and most importantly, as we answer this question of how to endure in your prison temple, is, um, I'll just read verse 8 of section 122. The Son of Man hath descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? And I just thought, you know, we can't forget Jesus in this equation. Remember what he went through. Remember what he did. And remember that he's there for us and that we can turn to him and remember all that he did for us. Um, I like this verse also in verse 121 and maybe a little bit more, uh, another well-known verse, but this is verse 7. My son, peace be unto thy thy soul. Thine adversity and thine afflictions shall be but a small moment. I think as you seek that light, which of course in part means to seek Jesus and seek God in your trials, but remember that um, they'll speak to you in those same ways. They can give peace to our hearts and help us in our adversity and also give us perspective of what it is that we're going through and what the true meaning of um, our trials are. I think that's powerful. And I think probably the most, the first question we'll want to ask ourselves when we're contemplating prison temples, how do I endure this? The second question I think that comes, if we can add a second invest question in this episode is, if I can stay in this prison temple, if I can figure out how to endure this, the second question is, what am I supposed to get out of it? Why am I here in the first place? What's the purpose behind my prison temple? Of course, 
very commonly asked question, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And more personally, why does he allow bad things to happen to me? Um, before that verse that you just read, which was my favorite verse in high school, in the letter, there's um, a preface. That verse happens right in the middle of a thought. In fact, the it's in the middle of a sentence. And I want to read the beginning of that. So he's writing to, um, or he's referencing uh, people that he's writing to. So Emma, his brother Don Carlos, Bishop Partridge, and letters that they have written to him. And he's describing, Joseph describes how uplifting these letters are to one who's in prison temple. And there's probably a lesson there as well. But as he's describing the benefits those bring to him, he, say, he says that receiving word from others moves the mind backward and forward from one thing to another until finally all enmity, malice, hatred, and past differences, misunderstandings, and mismanagements are slain victorious at the feet of hope. And then he says something really interesting. And when the heart is sufficiently contrite, then the voice of inspiration steals along and whispers, My son, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thy affliction shall be but a small moment. So verse 7 comes at the end of a sentence. And the beginning of that sentence is, When the heart is sufficiently contrite. In other words, that kind of comforting revelation only comes when we have been become contrite from the trials of our prison temple. Um, which means one of the purposes of being in a prison temple is to enable us to receive that kind of comforting revelation. Without the prison, you can't have that kind of glorious revelation, that kind of comfort that comes. A little bit later on in his letter, Joseph... Um, writes something that I just captured me when I read it. He describes, um, well, he uses this phrase. He says, we exhort one another to a reformation with one and all. And in and around that phrase, he describes, at the beginning of the letter, he writes about those that are opposing the church and uh, the horrible things they've done to church members and what he hopes God will do in retribution to them. And you see that in section 121. It's not the most uplifting reading. But then he shifts, this is a long letter, then he shifts his focus, and he starts to look at what this experience, both the prison temple and the trials that the church members have been through in Missouri, what it has done and what it will do for them. And I find this fascinating. He says, Therefore, dearly beloved brethren, we are the more ready and willing to lay claim to your fellowship and love, for our circumstances are calculated to awaken our spirits to a sacred remembrance of everything, and we think that yours are also. Our circumstances are calculated to awaken our spirits. A little bit later on, he uses that very similar language uh, in a different way. Um, he's describing the murderous mob, the guards and the jailers, grinning like some damned spirits, lest an innocent man should make his escape to bring to light the deeds of a murderous mob. He says all of those things are calculated in their very nature to make the soul of an honest man feel stronger than the powers of hell. As I read those, again, this is where maybe we build on last week, I was impressed again by the truth that God allows trials and difficulties and has even maybe calculated 
trials and difficulties into our mortal experience so that we can become aware of things that we otherwise wouldn't see, so that we can sense strength in ourselves that otherwise we couldn't sense, and so that we can become something that we otherwise couldn't become. And of course, this is where it gets tricky too, I think, for um, just the great question of why do bad things happen to good people or why do bad things happen to innocent people? Because as we discussed this, it, it became kind of that, um, that classic, really hard, I don't know, what would you say, philosophical debate of life mm-hmm. is that hard things, and not just hard things, um, Bad things, tragic, evil things, yeah. evil things happen to people, and, and is God the cause of that? Yeah, which we're not going to pretend to philosophize on that or but... have an answer to it. But we, I think, we are at least safe in saying, right? Everything that happens in our mortal experience is known by the Creator of this plan. And I sometimes wonder if we tip the scale a little bit too far in saying, well, bad things happen because of people's agency, which is true, absolutely true. But we almost speak about it as if God is powerless in those moments, that he had a plan where we wouldn't suffer and we wouldn't have trials and difficulties, but then bad people came along, did bad things, and that's why we suffer and have trials. And that just doesn't square doctrinally. Everything in our mortal experience is known by God and allowed. He could stop it. The fact that he doesn't indicates that there has to be some spiritual soul benefit to these trials, as horrible as they can be. There has to be something that comes because of it. Um, I love this. He says, uh, this is another interlude between verse 32 and 33. There's a break. And he says, I beg leave to say unto you, brethren, that ignorance, superstition, and bigotry, placing itself where it ought not, is oftentimes in the way of the prosperity of the church. In other words, he's saying we have seen, because of our trials and difficulties, some things that have crept into the church. Uh, Earlier, before that, he says that their meetings, their conferences and councils and meetings have been too low, too mean, and too vulgar. In other words, he's seeing things in the church that he otherwise couldn't see unless he's going through the trials he's going through. So he says, these things um, are oftentimes in the way of the prosperity of the church, and I love this like the torrent of rain from the mountains that floods the most pure and crystal stream with mire and dirt and filthiness and obscures everything that was clear before and all rushes along in one general deluge. He's looking at the muddy waters of what the church is in 1839, 1838 and 39, and he's seeing, yeah, it's, it's muddy. There's a lot of mess that's there. And some of that mess is our fault, and we couldn't have recognized it unless we had gone through what we're going through. And then this phrase, but time weathers tide. And notwithstanding we are rolled in the mire of the flood for a long time being, the next surge, peradventure, as time rolls on, may bring to us the fountain as clear as crystal and as pure as snow while the filthiness, flood wood, and rubbish is left and purged out by the way. And then verse 33, how long can rolling water remain impure? What power shall stay the heavens? And so for me, at least, as I studied, uh, why am I in this prison temple? 
uh, it resonated with me that God allows this and even has calculated this mortal experience to be the way that it is so that I can see things I otherwise couldn't see, so that I can change things in myself I otherwise wouldn't change and become things that I otherwise wouldn't become. To me, that's what makes a prison into a temple. In the, t- in the temple, you become something different. Through ordinances and covenants, you become something different. And when we can take our prison experiences and use them to become something different with God's help and his grace, then it becomes a temple. So lastly, with our connect, um, I was going to say connect question, it's more of an invitation. I don't think that there's really nothing that isn't an invitation in this one. Um, I think that all of these things are ways that we're all going through something hard. We're all going through something. And I think all of these kind of make it a way for us to connect better to God. But one of the things that we specifically thought was fitting for this week's episode, this scripture study, is at the end of verse of section 123. Um, It says, Therefore, dearly beloved brethren, let us cheerfully do all things that lie in our power. And then may we stand still with the utmost assurance to see the salvation of God and for his arm to be revealed. I think that's a great invitation for us to um, remember that we have have power, we have will, um, and to cheerfully do those things. Um, and like we said, that there's going to be many emotions, but the thing I thought of is, you know, at the very least, sometimes when we're going through hard things, something that we can do is say a prayer of gratitude or write a gratitude list um, and remember that, that God is waiting for us and is there with us even in those those hard times and i also like that it says um and then may we stand still with the utmost assurance to see the salvation of god and sometimes maybe that's just giving ourselves a deep breath during those really hard moments so i think that this verse can offer a few different ways for you to connect to god in new ways this week well i love that uh in liberty jail joseph chooses cheerfulness and uh, it's a great challenge for us to choose to be cheerful when we're amidst, going through a prison experience. Amidst other a range <laughs> of emotions, other emotions right? Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, to end, um, one more small note from the letter that's not included in our Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, this quote is pretty well known. He says, uh, The things of God are of deep import. And time and experience and careful and ponderous and solemn thoughts can only find them out. Thy mind, O man, if thou wilt lead a soul into salvation, must stretch as high as the utmost heavens and stretch into and contemplate the darkest abyss and the broad expanse of eternity. Thou must commune with God. In other words, if you want to be like God, you've certainly got to uh, expand as high as the utmost heavens, but you also have to search and contemplate the darkest abyss. How can you be like God if you can't contemplate prison, trials, difficulties? How can you empathize with others if you've never been there yourself? He says, how much more dignified and noble are the thoughts of God than the vain imaginations of the human heart? And then he says a phrase that I'm going to deliberately take out of context and use in a way that he didn't intend. But I love this. He says, none but fools will trifle with the souls of men. And I'm sure what Joseph means is those that are trying to ruin our salvation, that are trying to trifle with our souls, are foolish because God's in control of our growth and there's no way that they can stop us from becoming what God wants us to be. 
But I read a second thing. Uh, in fact, this is the first way I read it, and I had to correct myself. I thought, isn't God a trifler with souls? That's his business, right? To work on and grow and develop souls. And so if that's true, then by this, God has to be the most divine fool. And I use that word very cautiously, obviously. But to me, it is a sign of incredible love that God is so attentive to our situations and circumstances, both when we're being blessed and having temple experiences and when we're sitting in Liberty Jail and wondering why we're there. He is as attentive in both places. Uh, he is... He is focused wholly on the development of our souls. And that's comforting to me. We are so happy you are here. Thank you for listening this week. And we hope you have a great study.